The ancients worshipped the storm gods. They searched the sky for portents, casting the bones and reading the guts. Glazed-eyed shamans sucked their pipes and mumbled in the smoke. With voices not their own, they screeched out songs. With strength beyond them, they danced for days in jangling, swooping forms, learned on other worlds. And when their dances and ravings had passed, they would wipe the spittle from their lips and the bloody sweat from their brows and demand gifts for their gods, small offerings so that large ones would not be required. Bowls of blood and racks of flesh, so that villages would not be filled with human carrion. But what if there were no shamans? What if there were no sacrifices when the old ones returned? From the Secret Journal of Corneal Augustus Moon, dated June 1, 1878. Episode 3 Dagon's Illusion Rain Wind and rain The first whisper of what was to come was descending Rain Wind and rain Drenching, driven, lashing the Spanish moss into whips that scourged the trees Old trees towering like rows of sodden sorcerers Limbs writhing, branches bending, gaps ripping in cowls of green not in all its two hundred years had such a storm descended upon Montreux Avenue, a street of mansions with memories carefully pruned and preened. Rivulets of filth flowed over cobblestones covered with asphalt. Generations ago, high-stepping horses pulling luxurious carriages had clattered here. Inside had lounged the masters and mistresses of yesterday, jouncing along in sweaty splendor, served by liveried slaves. Gone now, replaced by a new generation that rode sweat-free in the leather splendor of Porsches and Mercedes. But this day Montreux Avenue was empty. Believing the reports from satellites and politicians, the rich had run from the storm. Behind closed iron gates lay their boarded-up mansions. But where the avenue ended in a circle of bristling hedge, one gate remained open. Next to it, stood a sign in a kind of postmodern Celtic script, Dagon's Illusion, the heart of magic and the blues. Torqued through the words was a mysterious symbol that ancient pagans would have understood. It was a labyrinth, faded and broken, with walls torn down. Not far beyond the gate, like a lovely ghost, stood a white-columned mansion. For as long as anyone could remember, they had called her Marin House. Born on the backs of slaves, her foundations laid with sorrow, walls painted with sweat, gardens planted with tears. Through wars and rumors of war she had stood, and the generations born within her had grown fat on a wealth of shadows. Finally, the last of her children had gone away, leaving her desolate. Seven decades ago she had been sold for a pittance like an aging whore. Then had come years of hard use and crumbling rot, the years when people said the whore was reaping what she had sown. Just when the wrecking ball was about to put her out of her misery, a strange new master and mistress had arrived. With them had come resurrection. She had been rebuilt and reborn as Dagon's illusion, 
the hottest haunted nightclub in New Orleans, the jewel in the voodoo crown, and the wealthy of the world had flocked to her. But this day no crowds hurried through her great doors. Every window was boarded up, and in front sat a single van with its engine running. The rain fell harder. Inside the mansion the main floor was empty. Stripped of most of its furnishings, only two small lamps struggled against the gloom. But even in this state the old house whispered of scintillating mysteries. During the renovation the high-ceilinged rooms had been transformed into performing venues. Most were small where intimate groups could gather, but one was large. Long ago it had been the grand ballroom where lovely women in long dresses had danced careful minuets with stiff old men in ham-chop whiskers. Now it was center stage for world-class performers, their portraits hung in the hall, musicians and magicians together. Beneath them lay lovely old display cases from some long-forgotten apothecary. On any other day they would have been crammed with memorabilia. Ornate chests, goblets, dragon silks, and Celtic wands nestled with harmonicas, musical spoons, and homemade banjos. But the cases were empty, their precious cargo packed away, for this was the day of wind and rain. Somewhere a shutter swung and crashed. From the gloom came angry voices. The hell you will! We are equal partners and we make equal decisions. A woman's voice. About business! This is personal, the booming voice of a man. You don't think your well-deserved death might have a slight impact on our bottom line? Forget our bottom line. When this is over, all we'll be doing is suing the insurance company. Into the main hall stalked a tall woman in her late thirties dressed in an expensive running suit. Her blonde hair was pulled back in a bun, and even facing a hurricane, her makeup was immaculate. Ellison Carter could have been a high-fashion model, except that her flashing black eyes were incapable of holding a single vapid look. She was ice and fire, beauty with a withering tongue that only the greatest effort could keep in check. Normally she made the effort, camouflaging her natural acidity with an unnerving amount of grace and charm, except when she was dealing with idiots, and an idiot was walking beside her right now. At forty-four, Robert Arthur Dagan was viciously handsome with the intensity of a human Doberman. It didn't matter that his dark hair always lay plastered as though he had just come from a long run in the rain. It didn't matter that his face usually bristled with whiskers because he was too lazy to shave or that he dressed like a wealthy derelict. All of that was part of the mystique, the carefully fabricated facade of esoteric brilliance that came so natural to him, a brilliance that could flicker with just enough fake boyish vulnerability to drive stupid women absolutely wild. But she knew the truth. He was an idiot. Robert Dagan stared at her. He knew what she was thinking. Soon it would come out of her mouth. He was not a patient man, especially with stubborn women who had serious boundary issues and he really, really didn't like to be called an idiot. That was what was coming. The muscle in his jaw twitched. We're wasting time. No, you are wasting time. Have you gone completely insane? Because of some stupid-ass fantasy, you're actually going to sit here until the walls fall down. You are such an idiot. The muscle twitched harder. No one else in the world would have had the guts to speak to him that way. But whatever this infuriating woman said, he had to take it because no one else in the world had risked so much for him. Years ago, when their association began, he had hated her. 
Not only was she brilliant and beautiful, her clear-eyed honesty had irritated the hell out of him. Suspecting that she was guided by some constipated moral code, he had made her life miserable as he probed for the putrescence that he was sure lay soaking somewhere under the surface. He hadn't found it. Instead, he had found wounds. Lots of them. But none had turned into bloody, soul-sucking rot the way they always did in him. Cynical as he was, he had been forced to accept that there were a few good women left in the world. Not that he liked good women. Later, he had been thankful for her goodness. It gave her an amazing capacity to put up with his weird crap, something that no other woman in the world had been able to do. Well, no other woman except one. But she wasn't in this world. And so they shared a partnership, the exact nature of which could not be fully defined. Business partners they were, and Ellison was a hundred times more creative and cunning than anyone else. God help an adversary in a lawsuit or negotiation. With unwavering charm, she would eat people alive, stripping their bones of marrow, and when it was all over, her victims loved her. It was a mystery that he couldn't fathom. When he tried to be nice, people hated him. Not that he tried that often. But their partnership wasn't all about business. Were they friends? Not really. More like conjoined twins who shared the same guts, but are polar opposites and periodically flail at each other. Lovers? Certainly not that either. Oh, perhaps once years ago that kind of dance had begun, but they had stopped it. More accurately, she had stopped it. And after prison, well, such a dance just wasn't possible anymore. Suddenly Ellison Carter looked very tired, which wasn't normal for her. Robert, when this thing makes land, it's going to kill a lot of people. I was the one who told you that. Just this once, would you please listen to me? I have a terrible feeling about this storm, and it has nothing to do with what you predicted. Maybe I have the same feeling. Then why are we standing here? I can't go, Ellie. Give me one damn reason! I can't do that either. From outside came the sound of a horn. Your parents are waiting. You want to kill them? Get out of here. Leave. He pulled open the front door. Instantly they were engulfed in wind and rain. She snarled. If you die, so help me God, I'll find you in hell and murder your ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drive safe. Throwing him a hateful look, Ellison Carter ran down the steps and jumped into the van. Closing the door to a crack, Dagan watched her drive away. If he had believed in prayer, he would have prayed for her. But prayer was psychic masturbation. What was the point of it, when the only god you worshipped was yourself?